0: Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine at Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we'll be discussing the paper by Victoria Nesbitt and colleagues entitled Risk and Causes of Death in Children with a Seizure Disorder, which is in the July issue of the journal. It will be discussed by Dr. Rob Forsyth, Paediatric Neurologist and Institute of Neuroscience, Newcastle University in newcastle upon Tyne, uk who's one of the authors, and Professor Frank Biesag, Consultant Neuropsychiatrist at Bedford and London in the UK. Please, can we start with you, Rob, to discuss the background to the paper?
1: Yes, of course. So the discussion starts with the Sentinel Audit, which was the very influential report published in the UK some years ago now, which really was responsible for bringing the concept of sudden unexpected death or, or SUDEP into the mainstream of the epilepsy conversation. And I think there have been genuine uncertainties as to how best to discuss SUDEP and the broader issue of epilepsy-related mortality risks to families and to young people with epilepsy. The message from the audit is obviously that organizations such as Epilepsy Bereaved and indeed in the NICE guidelines is uh, that awareness of epilepsy-related mortality should be something that is discussed and that conversation is, is a conversation that needs to be well informed by data. There is, of course, some very good epidemiological data out there on mortality in epilepsy cohorts. But one of the problems with the large number of studies out there is that they are studies of mortality in cohorts of children recruited in life with new diagnoses of epilepsy. That makes them very rigorous population-based studies and avoids problems with bias, but it does mean that absolute numbers of deaths in those cohorts are small, and it always makes it difficult to be confident about ascertainment of events that occur rarely and rare circumstances that might lead to death. So we turned the question round and collected a large number of deaths in children who had been identified as having a seizure disorder in life with the hope of, uh, by making the denominator larger, of recognizing some rarer patterns. And generally the messages from the paper are consistent with the literature. It's been long recognized, certainly in the pediatric literature, that we're dealing with a heterogeneous population, children who have seizure disorders, but who in fact have, it's almost not sensible to talk about them as as having the disease epilepsy. There are epilepsies, there are children having seizure disorders associated with complex neurological disabilities of various kinds. And then there are children who have idiopathic primary epilepsies. And a conversation that doesn't recognize the heterogeneity of pediatric epilepsy is going to be very flawed. And what is clear from our study is that the large majority of deaths in people with epilepsy actually are not seizure-related deaths. They probably relate more to the associated neurodisabilities that also gave rise to the seizure disorder. And the message I guess we wanted to emphasize most of all is that for the child with an idiopathic epilepsy there certainly is a risk of mortality but it's primarily a risk related to hazards such as bathing and traffic and so on. But that this specter of sudden unexpected death that could strike at any moment but is you know of uncertain mechanism and uncertain preventability we can really give quite a reassuring message about that to the families of children with idiopathic epilepsies.
2: Yes, well, this is a very helpful and uh, very nice study, and I agree entirely with what uh, Dr. Forsyth says about the difficulties with numbers in the prospective studies. If you look at the four studies from Nova Scotia, Connecticut, Finland, and the Netherlands, the largest of those studies is 60 deaths, and the as smallest as 13. So these are really not terribly large overall numbers, whereas the numbers that uh, we're talking about even in the single group was 168, I think, um, children with epilepsy. Uh, So that's a much more respectable number on on which to try to analyze subgroups. Of course, with any data collection, there are going to be limitations, and the limitation is that one doesn't always... uh, all the information that one wants in studies of this nature, particularly in retrospective studies, that's true. And so that's a necessary limitation. I should mention a study that came out at about the same time as the current paper, but this is a study that, again, was an epidemiological one with reasonable numbers. It was just published in Drug Safety in 2011 by um, one of my PhD students, Ruth Akers, This was looking at the General Practice Research Database, which covers about 5% of the UK population from 1993 to 2005. So that covered 6,190 subjects, over 28,000 patient years, these are patients from naught to 18 years, and during that period, in that cohort, 151 young people died. This remarkably gave us a rather higher standardized mortality rate than most of the other studies. It was a standardized mortality rate of 22.4, which is really rather high. But again, I'd echo what Dr. Forsyth said, namely that very few of these 151 deaths were epilepsy-related. We worked out that 18 of those that we could ascertain were epilepsy-related. Of those. Nine were probable or possible SUDEP, sudden unexpected death and um, epilepsy, and nine were other epilepsy-related deaths. Of the nine SUDEP cases, and these are particular cases that are of interest in the light of what Dr. Forsyth has already said, six did occur in children and teenagers who had other underlying conditions, but three occurred in those who were on anti-epileptic drug monotherapy and did not appear to have other conditions. So that left us with a minority that just seemed to have epilepsy and nothing else. But if you do the calculation for the whole group, that's 3.3 per 10,000 patient years of the risk for pseudo. So that's small. If you take out those who had underlying conditions, it drops to 1.1%. For 10,000 patient years, which is a very, very tiny figure, and I really would again emphasize what Dr. Forsyth said, and that is that when we're talking about this, I think I'm in the group that thinks it's important to give parents the information so that they don't obtain misinformation from another source. I do try to raise this if I think the parents are able to cope with it in the initial appointment, and I say, yes, this does occur but it's rare. Being struck by lightning does occur, but it's rare. So that's an important take-home message. The other characteristic that came out of both Dr. Forsyth's study and ours, and indeed the other epidemiological studies and cohort studies, was that status epilepticus was quite prominent. In our study, we had six cases of status epilepticus associated with death. And interestingly, two of those were following anti-epileptic drug withdrawal, which perhaps makes us think cautiously about how we withdraw anti-epileptic drugs. And the usual rule, and I think a very good rule to follow, is withdraw them slowly so that you have the opportunity to see whether the seizures are returning. If we withdraw them suddenly, then perhaps a serious seizure exacerbation is much more likely to occur. So six of those remaining nine cases. We had nine sued total of 18. Of the nine that were not sued six were stasis epilepticus. The remaining three were aspiration of gastric contents. So we have a very interesting group of 18 patients who had epilepsy-related deaths, really raising some interesting questions, important questions about how we might prevent deaths, even in this relatively small number.
1: It's,
2: It's always reassuring when
1: studies From different data sources and using slightly different methods come up with reasonably consistent messages. And and I think these two papers, Professor BSAG's very important work, this paper, and the existing prospective cohorts do seem to be telling a consistent message. And that message does, I think, seem to include a fairly inescapable conclusion that for whatever reason, and I don't think this is well understood, the story in children is different from the story in adults, that The nightmare scenario in adults of an economically independent, active young adult being found having suddenly and unexpectedly died, thankfully seems to be, its it's pediatric counterparts, seems to be mercifully very rare.
2: Yes, I'd certainly agree with that. And uh, I think you quoted a figure of 10 to 100 times smaller in pediatric uh, populations. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, some of the best information and uh, least alarming, but since it's still alarming, and adults suggest that the rate of pseudo might be something like one in a thousand patient years. The less uh, favourable figures are something like one in four hundred patient years. But if you take the one in a thousand patient years, we're talking about one in ten thousand patient years. we're talking about children who don't have an underlying condition, those who, including everyone, is something like 3 per 10,000 patient years. Your estimate of the upper limit, interestingly, was about 6.5 6. per um, 10,000 patient years. If I put it that way, you've expressed it as 65 per 100,000 patient years, which is the same. When we look at our confidence limits in our study, I've said the figure was 3.3 3 per 10,000 patient years. The confidence limits were 1.5 to 6.4, so it matches beautifully with your own estimate So the maximum would be something like 6.5 per 10,000 patient years. But the real figure is probably considerably lower than that. Yes.
1: I mean, the other point that we touch on in our paper, and in fact we're taking further in, in a review that we're preparing at the moment, is the fact that these sudden death phenomena in various chronic illnesses are in somewhat separate literatures and that we've rather failed to read across into the diabetes literature and the other chronic illnesses literatures and and see quite how similar the pictures are in those situations. And this risk of sudden unexpected death in children with primary generalized IgE epilepsy is is comparable to the rate of sudden unexpected death in in the general population. And again, I mean, that just think, emphasises Professor Biesag's point about giving families a perspective with which to interpret these numbers, because obviously people find interpreting risks very small, but if you can put them into context and relate them to risks of driving and so on, it's extremely helpful.
0: That begs two other questions, actually, but one is Colin Ferry's paper suggested parents wanted to be told themselves but didn't want you to tell their children. They wanted to be left to them to tell their children. Do you agree with that?
2: I think that's very much horses for courses, if I may say so. I think if we're a teenager, I'd want to talk to them separately because they would want that and feel respected in the process. But I would only do that with the permission of the parent, of course. If we're a younger child or perhaps a a nervous child or teenager, it might be a different matter. And I think it's very important with families in general that goes to the parents and the children to give them information at a rate that seems right for them. And so if I had a particularly nervous family who were devastated perhaps by the diagnosis of epilepsy on the first visit, I probably exceptionally would not mention uh, the risk of suicide because that might be just too much information on one visit. But that would be fairly exceptional. Usually parents come fairly well prepared and understand that the child has epilepsy by the time they come to see me. And so they're probably ready for that information.
1: The other point about, and, and just jumping back to your mention of Colin Ferry's paper, and, and again just emphasising how I think one does have, have to tailor one's approach to individual families. But of course, Dr. Ferry's families are pre-selected in that they are families who gave con- informed consent. Uh, so that they're families who consented to be involved in a study whose purpose was. Made clear to them, so one could argue that potentially there is a, a bias there which just i mean it 's an unavoidable bias, but it, it, you know, it just begs another question uh, to the preferences of the families who chose not to participate yes.
0: and the only other important clinical question is uh, everyone accepts about not suddenly stopping anti consultants, but um, the question then arises is how slowly should they be stopped over what period you know weeks or months? Uh, Obviously, it will vary according to Aston dolson as well. But it would be interesting to hear your views on that.
1: Yes, well, again, I'm not sure I have a a one-size-fits-all solution. Certainly, I think we all recognize the risks of withdrawal seizures and over-hasty withdrawal are greater with certain drugs than others, and the benzodiazepines and vagabatrin in particular come to mind in that context. I think withdrawals of those drugs do have to be extremely slow over many months.
2: Yes, again, I'd agree. It depends very much on circumstances. If you have a child with a fairly benign epilepsy syndrome who's had very few seizures and no other problems and doesn't have any other uh, underlying brain abnormalities, for example, has a normal EEG, then uh, one might feel fairly confident about withdrawing the medication after perhaps two years of seizure freedom, although one would still do it slowly, and I'll come to what I mean by slowly, if, on the other hand, you have a child with underlying cerebral palsy, has had very severe epilepsy for several years with life-threatening bouts of status epilepticus, and is now seizure-free for three or four years, you might feel very, very cautious about withdrawing anti-epileptic medication. This is something I always talk through very fully with the parents, and they might wish to wait for longer, or they might just not feel confident about withdrawing the medication at all in those circumstances. So it is very, very much a case of tailoring the management to the individual case. Now, in the cases where we do think withdrawal can reasonably safely take base, and I certainly have managed to to get um, to withdraw the medication completely, and the young person has remained seizure-free, and eventually we've actually declared them as not having epilepsy anymore, which is a joyful moment, really. But even in those cases, my usual phrase is, No one is standing over us with a whip. This young person has managed to cope with this medication, hopefully without any particularly unpleasant adverse effects, for perhaps at least two years, often much longer. Let's take it down slowly. So if there is any chance of a seizure exacerbation, hopefully the seizure exacerbation will be much less severe than if we withdrew quickly. And in practice, that would usually mean over a few months, I know some of my colleagues would withdraw much more quickly than that, but because of that argument, there really isn't any pressure on us to withdraw quickly. I withdraw slowly, and that means over a few months. If it's something like benzodiazepine, supposing it's Clobazam, and we're trying to get the drug away, perhaps in a child who's not controlled, then I might take longer. It might take something like two years. But again. Uh, And we know that there are certain drugs that are associated with withdrawal seizures like the benzodiazepines and the barbiturates, although we seldom use those these days. In those cases, primidone, of course, as well. In those cases, we would withdraw very cautiously and very slowly. And in my case, that would probably be something like a couple of years in those specific cases.
0: The National Institute of Clinical Excellence 2012 guidelines are the same as the 2004 ones, and they say two to three months for most drugs, except for benzodiazepines and barbiturates, which should be uh, six months at least.
2: Yes, I, I was one of the advisors on the, the NICE guideline. Uh, again, that's not unreasonable, but it, although I might be a little bit more cautious with the benzodiazepines and barbiturates. But you have to ask, what's the advantage of withdrawing as quickly as that? And the advantage is you don't have to take any medication, but the disadvantages might be that you have a seizure exacerbation. And so it's one of these situations where I don't think there are hard and fast rules, but I just tend to think slowly. The general principle in epilepsy is that rapid changes except, of course, if we are treating stasis epilepticus. But rapid decisions are usually bad decisions in epilepsy. It's best to do things very slowly so that the brain can readjust.
1: I agree. I guess, and this is a personal view, I'm not sure I've ever seen any evidence for this, but I think one slight problem with very slow changes in drug dosing and so on is that sometimes... Families find it very confusing and clinicians find it very confusing trying to attribute cause and effect. You have good patches, you have bad patches, you wonder whether it's to do with the introduction of drug X or the withdrawal of drug Y. Um, And you're trying to see signals that help guide you in your drug adjustments amongst the noise of the spontaneous and, and apparently random good patches and bad patches that children's epilepsy runs through. And I think the only comment I would make is if you, if you withdraw very cautiously and you're trying to decide whether that's been a step in the right direction or wrong direction and you're trying to recall how things were six months ago or nine months ago, that might be a little problematic. But the the general message about moving slowly and indeed often just sitting on your hands and changing nothing and just seeing to what extent someone's epilepsy changes spontaneously I think is an important one.
2: Again, I agree entirely. Epilepsy is a very variable condition, and uh, I had to laugh at um, a previous colleague some years ago. They said to him every time the child had a seizure, he would change the medication. I think both Dr. Forsyth and and I would agree that's probably not wise management, uh, because it is a variable condition, and one has to allow for that and particularly during the the teenage years, it can be very, very variable, uh, and one uh, has to allow for that and indeed uh, uh, respond accordingly to it. Can I just make one additional point, a point that we haven't covered with regard to death, and that is uh, very timely, I suppose, in view of the uh, last few minutes' discussion, and that's the role of anti-epileptic drugs in causing death, because we've said we want to withdraw them slowly. Is there any disadvantage with regard to death relating to continuing the anti-epileptic medication? And with one very important exception, I think probably the answer to that is no, but the important exception of which we are aware is sodium valproate. And in our series, we had two children who had been on sodium valproate for four years and developed pancreatitis. It's possible to develop life-threatening. In fact, it's possible to develop a mortal pancreatitis years after sodium valproate has been prescribed. Again, it's exceptionally rare. I've never seen it in the hundreds of patients that I've treated, but it's just a point to to note that it can occur, but it's very, very rare. Thank you. is there any other particular points that Rob you'd like
0: to make or Frank
2: you'd like to make? The only general point I'd make is that, uh, yes, epilepsy can be a devastating condition, but it's also important not to allow it to be any more devastating than it actually has to be. And it's important that children should live as full a life as possible. But that means viewing all the risks in a sensible, balanced way. And among those, of course, is the risk of sudden death, which is tiny, whereas the risk of bathing unsupervised is great. And that's not a risk worth taking, and that is something to be concerned about. So seeing the whole thing in balance and not allowing the epilepsy to interfere any more than it should, but being sensible about where, where the real high risks occur. Thank you very much for that. We've now
0: come to the end of our podcast time. Many thanks indeed to Dr. Rob Forsyth and Professor Frank Bissack for a very educational discussion on clinically what's a very important and sensitive issue. I hope everyone else listening will have found it as useful as I have. Just to remind listeners, the article concerned is entitled Risk and Causes of Death in Children with a Seizure Disorder by Nesbitt, Fitzpatrick, Pearson, Culver and Forsyth and is coming out in the July issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology.